0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we are going to talk to Molly Rosam on her history, the grasslands of North America, an area known as the Northern Plains in the United States and as the prairies in Canada. Molly Rosam is currently the Ronald R. Nelson Chair of Great Plains in South Dakota History at the University of South Dakota. She received her PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and has worked on the history of this transnational region throughout her career. Although she grew up and was educated in the United States, she has spent time in Canada as a visiting professor and researcher. Her book is entitled Grasslands Grown, Creating Place on the U.S. Northern Plains and Canadian Prairies. It was jointly published by the University of Nebraska Press and the University of Manitoba Press in 2021. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: as a, what I would think is, from my perspective at least, a unique structure and approach. I, I'd like you to describe it to us and tell us exactly why you decided to proceed in this way.
1: The book, you know, as a construction, developed over many years, and I've tried various things that, to get to the final construction, but I would say that I'm a regional, cultural, and environmental historian, And I sort of came to this project to the field of Western history as it was burgeoning in the 1990s. And I also wanted to question, you know, what is a region? How do we come up with regions? Do they change over time? And I think there's a tendency for all historians who consider themselves Great Plains historians to end up, you know, studying Canada or Mexico. We really take this, the ecology of our Human spaces, uh, seriously. All the chapters and all the themes, therefore, kind of have some link to um, landscapes and how land, how how land was encountered and it, how it changed over time. I try to examine the innerly concepts of sense of place and regional identity over the lifespan. So I've got chapters on children, adolescents, and then uh, several chapters looking at sort of adult expressions of place and regional identity, so that the book looks over a large chronological time period from 1870s to 1950s. The people I studied had many aspects to their lives, many careers, a variety of things what I tried to do was study the sources that led me to their ideas about land, landscape, and region. So I'm pulling from a certain kind of place in their lives. Um, and I generally wanted to include Northern Plains settler voices in, in history and wanted to push us beyond, though, that kind of settlement history toward the next generation which brings us into 20th century themes. So I think that all of those aspects are sort of reflected in the way I constructed the book.
0: In the uh, introduction, you describe how, in 1913 near Fort Pierre, South Dakota, Hattie Foster found a lead plate buried by Francois and Louis-Joseph Lavrandre in 1743. What uh, was the significance of this plate and why did you choose it to uh, this particular event to introduce your book?
1: I was thrilled when I found this story of these children who were actually high school age children, you know, on, a, on some sort of recess from school play, or after school playing on this gumbo hill outside of Fort Pier near their high school. And they discovered this this plate. And so the whole town was in a buzz about, well, what is this? Is this significant? What, you know, what is this? And, you know, it turns out that it's 170 years old and there are explorations linked to it. And it was part of um, France's claim to this area of North America. They buried it, tried to make trade relationships with the the Arikara, who they were visiting when Francois and his brother buried it. And it really set up the themes that I wanted to d- discuss with the book nicely. First of all, all of a sudden, you've got 1913, when it was discovered in February, you've got all of a sudden people from Pier and Fort Pier reaching out up to Winnipeg, to Ottawa, to France, to Washington, D.C., trying to figure out this discovery. It's resurrecting from the soil, so to speak, finding this object in the soil, it's, it's telling a story it's causing people to reflect on their connections to one another. All of a sudden we're talking about Canadian and U S history and the French exploration in, in South Dakota. And this just makes people reassess what you can find in the land. The land tells stories. This was particularly, um, um, you know, concrete. Uh, The other thing I noticed when they told the story, these historians of the time period of the turn of the century, they also started, they referred to the Northwest, and this is South Dakota. And this kind of regional name had dropped out uh, of the way South Dakotans speak about themselves. And so, I mean, Canadians on the prairies would have recognized Northwest as being much more a part of their heritage, Um, uh, but not South Dakota. So this gave me kind of a cultural cue to things we might share. Um, and then, I mean, I'm really glad you asked this story because it, it brings up, I know about the Champlain Society because of this story. Because um, Lawrence Burpee, who was a historian and associate with the Champlain Society at the time in 1913, he was also a member of the International Joint Commission and he wrote to the state historian who's in Pier, right next to where these children found it, and said, what's going on there? I am working up a new translation of the La uh journals, both father and son, to maybe publish with the Champlain Society. And so <laughs> it was, you know, it was a wonderful moment. And so you see all the discussion that discovering this plate uh, caused among people to try to retell their history, to make sense of where they were coming from the land, the whole idea that people are in touch with the land, all of these things, what they call the place, you know, how they relate to Canada, all of these interconnections, that little find, that story allowed me to set up themes that I explore through the, the whole book. Um, Winnipeg published a, a little booklet about the lead plate that then Don Robinson, our South Dakota state historian, had to correct them and say, "We like it and it's wonderful, but next time you you, you do a new edition, please put South Dakota. You put North Dakota. <laughs> you know it was it was a really very interesting. You know just from finding this lead plate, we're back to the time of the. 1700s and the La Rondre family dealing with Arica indigenous peoples, trying to um, figure out whether there's the sea of the west that they can find, or whether this is going to be good fur trade area. Um, You know, and we're dealing with 20th century people, so it just brought up a lot of different aspects.
0: Now to what extent would you say that the northern grasslands is a single cultural region and to what extent uh, does the existence of a national border at the 49th parallel create two great plains cultures
1: I think what I study or what this book does is show us shows us how that changes over time there's this earlier period When settler colonials are starting to come in and the economy is starting to shift from fur trade industry, where indigenous peoples and the Métis had a lot of um, power in the culture along with the traders, it's starting to shift to settlers coming in to take up homesteads, to um, uh, um, found agricultural communities, and ultimately to transform those grasslands, late 19th century, early 20th century. I would say that settlement rush, that the advent of settler colonialism, the peoples coming in, Europeans, Eastern Canadians, Eastern uh, U.S. um, settlers, they shared a lot when they were trying to initially transform the grasslands. And so... um, in that sense, it's sort of this, this singular cultural region based on the ecology of the grasslands and how people at the time were interpreting their ability to turn it into agricultural land. And uh, there are parts of the early parts of the book where it talks about how in the Western area of the Northern grasslands, Montana and Alberta help fuel each other's settler society. And in the Eastern part, uh, Manitoba, Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, links between Winnipeg and the Red River Colony down to St. Paul, they really influence settlement. So they're developing their settler society cultures together. That's in the early years. And I really believe that a lot of these settler societies were so involved in trying to implant themselves in this landscape and kind of take it for their nation states and for themselves, gave them a lot to share. However, When we get to the 1920s, 1930s, there's some new nationalist movements in Canada. Um, The 30s is such a turning point for both the Canadian prairies and the Northern Plains that plains and prairies start to come to define these as different across the line. They become more incorporated into their nation states. People across Canada understand this emergence of the prairies as a solid, you know, as a region and in the northern or in the United States, all of a sudden, you know, the broad United States, because of the problems on the plains, you know, the, are there, is settler society actually going to remain on the plains? This was a big question in the United States. There does start to be some nationalism developed, right? And just finally, I'd like to say, I mean, in a way, I sort of have an advantage. Um, Cutting into this topic, talking about Canadian settlers and American settlers in this time period where they're transforming the grasslands, sense of place, regional identity, these are things that are widely shared. If I were to ask different questions, maybe about early policies or as farm agricultural economic policies developed over time, I think you're going to find more and more differences, the more you get beyond the first or second generation of settler society, you're going to get some more Canadian cultural developments and and more American developments on either side. In that early period, I think there's a lot they share. So it's kind of a long answer to your question, but it changes over time. And I think that this book kind of gives you a sense of how that's happening in those different cultural forces. I mean, being a settler... Colonial is is a project that really occupied those early generations, and that's what they cared about, I think.
0: What were some of the key primary document sources that you relied upon to construct this history of the northern grasslands?
1: I used a variety of documents from personal letters from children to memoirs, autobiographies, uh, some of them were published, some in, in manuscript collections, novels, poetry, uh, scientific writings, business records, basically any document that sort of had a quality, qualitative narr- uh, aspect to it that let me get at that individual's uh, relationship to the landscape.
0: The advent of settler colonialism in that first generation uh, resulted in the creation of indigenous reservations in the United States and reserves in Canada. So what were some of the differences in the approaches taken on both sides of the border in the northern grasslands?
1: Essentially, historians of this period argue that Uh, Canadian and U.S. policy towards indigenous peoples was very much uh, alike at the time. They were focused generally on getting access to indigenous land, forming treaties that would give the new nation states uh, uh, that land, and also uh, uh, policies of assimilation, boarding schools, all of that. There were a couple of differences, and one is that with the treaty system in Canada, uh, Canadians tended to uh, negotiate for um, rights to the whole area, giving Indigenous peoples permission to use the land as they always had until it was time for them to to uh, sort of settle into farming, and then they would uh, divvy up much smaller reserves based on particular leaders and their families. So there would be many, many, many small reserves whereas on the south of the border, the U.S. was trying to get indigenous peoples uh, kind of contained quickly. So they would—like, uh, the Great Sioux Reservation in South Dakota was huge, um, half of the state, and they would push uh, indigenous peoples onto that land, and then over time whittle them down uh, slowly. and. One of the scholars that I relied on for this is um, Jill St. Germain, who's really studied treaty making and reservation reserve policy um, quite extensively. Gave a little bit of a different look on the landscape. But essentially, they were after the same issues, land, preparing the way for settler colonials.
0: Right. Now, chapters two to five narrate childhood and adolescent experiences I was just curious as to how you chose the individuals and their stories. How
1: I chose them was quite specifically, I spent at least a year on the road and I went around to all regional archives, like in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Montana and South and North Dakota. And I looked specifically for people born during the late 19th century or who came to the region as settler children and grew up there and lived their lives. I was trying to cut into that generation, not their parents. So that's how I chose them. And lots of times in archives, you would have to go into kind of the big family papers, but I would find, okay, there's a whole box devoted to the young son's letters, right, or the daughter's memoir. And so that's how we went around. You know, anybody who sort of met my basic age parameters Is who I
0: chose. And in chapter five, you examine the continuum of settler indigenous relations. Can you give us an idea of the spectrum uh, from the negative to the positive interactions?
1: Yeah, this was, you know, one of the, you know, aspects of settler colonialism is sort of, you know, taking indigenous land and making it your own. And these, growing up, these children did that by developing relationships with certain kind of ecologies like uh, woods that grew along rivers, berry bushes, all sorts of grasslands, plants and forbs and um, rocks even that were left by glacial, um, the glacial past and even farm land. So they grew attached to various you know, local ecologies. And my one of my questions, though, was how conscious were they, what were their interactions of this generation with indigenous peoples? And somebody who I talk about a lot is George Will, and he grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. And he became very, very interested in indigenous relations through his love of seed raising and hybridizing and testing. And he discovered indigenous um, corn seed grown by the Mandan Hidatsa in Arikara near Bismarck and he made a lifetime studying this seed and then he began to think this might be this might solve the problems of plains agriculture if we could get white settlers to grow indigenous corn and so he was an advocate for it but the main t- at the meantime he made a lot of friends among the indigenous uh, peoples of the time, worked with them. Over time, uh, he came to see that some of the settler colonial policies were really um, hurting indigenous peoples, particularly religious prohibi- prohibitions. And his his um, attitudes changed quite some time. You could charge George Will with some appropriation of indigenous culture and using it for his own purposes but I argue he also came to understand them and the racism around him and that many farmers wouldn't even consider using indigenous seed because they were so racist. But it took him a lifetime to do this. On the other spectrum were people like Lillian Miller, who grew up in Montana, or Effie Laurie Storer, who grew up in Saskatchewan, who who seemed to have relationships with indigenous people and they never seem to change their minds over—you know, in their racist presumptions about primitivism and savagery, they never seem to change their minds over a whole lifetime. You know, 80 years old Effie Laurie Storer is still writing about primitive, you know, savage Crees in, near Battleford. Um, Lillian Miller is still thinking, remembering back, that she was the epitome of a white woman role model you know, for the Métis and the Montana Blackfeet. Many settlers don't even mention, you know, in the memoirs. They are completely silent and and that's troubling too. But there's quite a range and I thought a lot about um, how this all plays out. And I think Frankly, those that were settlers who were really struggling to figure out how the plains work as an environment, how grasslands work in its environment, they seemed to realize that indigenous peoples held deep knowledge about the place. And they grew to respect them and to find a way to communicate. And once you had a way to communicate, those were my best examples. when they were working together on some pro- project. It didn't happen all the time or very often. But as you noted, I had people along the spectrum. And um, like I said, one of the things that's interesting about this generation is that even those that cared or tried to correct their own ideas seemed to take them a lifetime of struggle, which I think is instructive for us. But
0: So uh, you also describe the historical evolution of grasslands, literature, and art. How would you best typify this evolution?
1: Part of the evolution was, and this is speaking for settler society, of course, um, you know, there was a, part of what they were trying to do is uh, represent this place, this generation that I study, the grasslands grown generation who were born there or raised, they wanted to see themselves in literature, their experiences in literature, their their impressions of a place in art. And they struggled to tell these, these stories in a, a, a literary way. And so some of the memoirs that I use, some of the novels I use, are products created by this effort to get into literature and art, what it's like to grow up in the spaces of the Plains, what it's like to struggle on a failing homestead, to have conflicts with your parents kind of in a literary way. Uh, They study all of these things, and, and I argue that for them, creation of novels and art and literature is really about they're trying to claim the place on a cultural level. This is part of what I would call settler colonialism down the generations, While their parents claimed homesteads and land and railroad land and and homesteads from the government, this group of people wrote novels. They tried to claim the place in a cultural way, and I argue that's a form of settler colonialism. If you have literature that is known across the nation, if you have art that becomes known, then your region gets accepted within the national makeup. And I think that's what this generation was trying to do. They struggled with it. And it was hard to get people in literary and art circles to accept what was coming out of these prairies and plains. But that was part of their project. They said this was a native, their own indigeneity in uh, saying we are from this place, this is the way we claim this place culturally.
0: I grew up in Saskatchewan, and one of the writers that I grew up with was Wallace Stegner, and uh, you present his life and thoughts in Chapter 6. As you point out, Stegner said that there is no such thing as the West. There are only Wests, many regions. Um, Can you just describe uh, his particular part of the grasslands, which he referred to as the dry country, Uh, he said that constituted a region. Uh, What did he mean by this uh, region or sub-region, and how did this uh, so-called dry country influence his writing?
1: Yeah, I do think it had an enduring influence on him. Uh, The area that Stegner grew up in is around East End, East End, kind of south to the border, his, his father's homestead was actually kind of on the Saskatchewan-Montana border. And then they, they also had a house in town in East End. And um, uh, so that was his area. And it's sort of on the edge of what Canadians would refer to as Palliser's Triangle, very short grass country where it's the—you're it's, trying to do farming The uh, amount of precipitation is, you know, unreliable in terms of if you're to do unaided crop, row crop agriculture, like wheat, which is what his his father tried to farm, you need to have about 20 inches of rain annually. And East End was sort of on this border where sometimes you might get a very healthy crop, many times not. And so he came to kind of think of this as a problem of aridity, like so many people of the Plains. Uh, And so I think when he spoke about that region or the dry country, that is what he was uh, referring to. And um, he wrote about it throughout his whole life. They aren't his most famous works, um, and they aren't even some of his own Uh, particular favorite works. But that got into him and it really made him question, you know, he had ideas that it was good to be a boy there, to grow up on the land, to to have contact with the grasslands and even farmlands, but that he also had these literary aspirations and cultural aspirations and he didn't feel that uh, the population could grow large enough to offer those things. So he was another of these conflicted conflicted writers and for him aridity and he grew so hence over time he grew to think not just of his Saskatchewan Palliser's triangle area but uh, he kind of became attached to a much larger North American uh, arid West and of course he ended up living in California and uh, he was very comfortable with aridity defining the West and I think that's in part comes from his his boyhood there in Saskatchewan where I think he wrote, Woof Willows really one of the most beautiful kind of prose books out there, I think, um, really uh, insightful.
0: And in the context of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, uh, what was the relationship between the highly commercial industrialized agriculture that uh, was obviously in uh, this region by that time? And the ethos of conservation that emerged in the interwar years.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this is a really key kind of turning point for the book, um, comes later in the book, but after the Dust Bowl, um, most of the people I study are, you know, far into adulthood. They learn a lot from it. And what has happened is, um, you know, through the Dust Bowl and then changes that came after it, um, Agricultural historians talk about World War II as sort of being the great disjuncture where agriculture changed, um, you know, in in many ways from the pre and post World War IIs. But what has happened here is highly commercialized industrialized agriculture is taken hold in the 20s and 30s, and it will bloom after World War II. And it's um, changed and brought... In very uh, quick fashion, much of the grasslands that these kids knew um, as native grasslands ecology, it's brought them under the plow, and now there's row crop agriculture, a variety of different crops, uh, wheat, oats, even uh, flax, and you know, lots of crops coming in to being, um, and it, and all of a sudden these these this generation kind of took it for granted that they had to have access to the grasslands that they loved on and played with, you know, as children, and they realized it's all going under. And so you get a variety of people seeking to preserve or conserve areas of the grasslands, put them into parks, or offer ideas about preserving little elements of it. One woman from Alberta, Anora uh, Brown, which I write a lot about, she wrote a book called Old Man's Garden where she researches all the prairie plants and sort of there's a lot of um, bitterness in there about the plow taking out the prairie, prairie rose, for example. And uh, I think, you know, it's important to realize they, this generation grew up with a sense of place that relied on both farmlands, grain greenlands, rangelands. And grasslands. By the time they get to be middle aged and even older, they see that it's turned mostly to farmlands and grazelands and more, ever more commercial, industrializing even faster. And they realize, oh, we should conserve elements of this. It shouldn't be completely lost. It's important to note that this is very much on their terms. They want a little bit, so they have a reminder to be saved or preserved for hunting or recreational use, uh, but they they very much feel attached to it. And so I think that's what that ethos emerges uh, from, that experience. And one of the things that I think is interesting about, important about this generation is they are the ones to grow up with both native grasslands and commercial farmlands and grazed lands, agricultural lands, and it's because of them, it's because of their writings that we understand so much about what it was like to actually experience the native ecological grasslands. And um, so that's an important function for them, although as settler colonials, they helped to transform those grasslands, um, even when it wasn't plowed under with, you know, much grazing. But they didn't want to see it all gone. And I think they became nostalgic. And I think they they said, wait, you know, but, but I think it was gradual. They like turned around and they said, where was, where is the grasslands? It's gone.
0: Right. So can we end our conversation with your own history? I'd like to know what your relationship with this region and its history really is. And why did you feel you needed to write this history?
1: I grew up in uh, Mitchell, South Dakota, Uh, and my um, family, my ancestors, were all settler colonials coming to the northern grasslands, to Nebraska and South Dakota. They were Czech, Irish, and German and either took out homesteads or worked for the railroad. And so I grew up very much in in that milieu. My grandmother, in fact, um, I'm sort of the youngest of of one of these big families, right? And my grandmother actually homesteaded in northwestern South Dakota. um, And she was the daughter of a homesteader. So I have that kind of personal uh, connection. Um, And I really wanted to see the northern grasslands, Um, be present in the historiography of the American West uh, in a way that I had not seen it before. And that was part of my goal. And I really thought it was important to um, talk about this place because in the field of Western history, we've spent a lot of time of talking about Segner's question about kind of where is the West? And it sort of uh, gets placed at the moment of aridity. And of course, my book argues it's more complicated than that. What was considered the West changes over time. And this was a way for me to make that uh, contribution. Um, but I think it has, you know, it has, like most of us, it has the professional and personal sort of origins.
0: Molly, I want to thank you so much for joining us today with the uh this discussion about your transnational history.
1: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
0: My guest today was Molly P. Rosen. Her book, Grasslands Grown, Creating Place on the U.S. Northern Plains and Canadian Prairies was jointly published by the University of Nebraska Press and the University of Manitoba Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at society.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers, including the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshalden. This interview was recorded on February 1st, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.